Hey everybody, you are tuned to Deep Dive, the All Music Books podcast, where we talk to authors of music books, bios, histories, and criticism. I'm your host, Steve J. Today's guest is Bob Mare, who wrote the book Trouble Boys, The True Story of the Replacements. It's a fabulous book, and we're excited to talk to Bob. Welcome, Bob. Thanks for having me. So one of the things I think many people think about the replacements, a band of misfits. In your book, you call them trouble boys. And there's a good reason for that based on their upbringing, which you meticulously document. Can you give our listeners the dime version of the childhoods of these guys? That was one of the things that interested me in the book. You know, the replacements are a band that's been written about quite a bit when they were together for the dozen years and in the decades since. You know, most of those stories gave this idea of them as a chaotic group of, as you say, a band of misfits and didn't really answer the question, well, why were they that way? So that was part of my remit in doing the book was let me get to the source of this behavior and the power of their music. And I think it all kind of flowed from the same place, which was childhoods that were steeped in alcoholism and abuse and the kind of Midwestern repression and post-war America in the 50s and into the 60s, uh, you know, that was particular to this group of four guys. I think one of the reasons they found each other and gravitated towards each other is because they had these shared backgrounds. You know, a way of escaping that is often the case is rock and roll. And, and that was really kind of what was the spark for the group, particularly for the Stinson brothers. Uh, Bob had come through a really rough childhood of, of emotional, physical, and sexual abuse and sort of made his way through the state institutions, uh, juvenile jails and group homes homes in Minneapolis. And when he came back, he saw his younger brother, Tommy, going down the same road. And instead of letting him go down that path, he put a bass in his hands. And that really is kind of the start of the band, is one brother really trying to save another brother. And then Chris Mars, the drummer, who came along very early on, had his own sort of things. His older brother had been a severe schizophrenic, and that it sort of colored his childhood. And so the two Stinson brothers and Chris Mars found each other. And then Along comes Paul Westerberg, uh, who would eventually become the band's singer and songwriter and frontman. And, and he had his own demons in terms of his parents and the kind of family history. And so as Westerberg says in the book, you know, we understood each other on a level that most guys didn't. We connected in that way because of our backgrounds. That's really kind of the foundation of the roots of this band. And, and so it was important for me to explore that in the book. Yeah, it is foundational for sure. I was fairly appalled and shocked at some of the stuff that happened and went on. But as you mentioned, the Stinson brothers are playing and Chris is playing and Paul comes along and everything sort of changes at that moment, doesn't it? It's a question of direction in a sense. I think Paul had dropped out of high school. He was a janitor. I think he and Bob Stinson saw the band as the only road up and out of what was otherwise going to be a pretty marginal existence. That's an age-old story in rock and roll, or at least it was for a lot of years. So that was certainly an, another important aspect. And I think what Paul brought to the band was a little bit of a sense of that, which he shared with Bob, but then another knowledge and a kind of canniness of how to move forward and get attention and build a reputation and a myth about the band. And he was doing that in the songs almost from the first album, from really from the first songs he wrote. And it was something that continued as the band grew and different aspects of their showmanship or their drinking or their mythology or their self-mythologizing. That all became part of this legend of the replacements, if you will. Certainly Paul was responsible for a lot of that. And he was also inspired in a lot of ways by the power of what happened when he hooked up with the Stinson Brothers and Chris Mars and it became its own force of nature as they went along. So yeah, so that's part of the story too is how you know even though we always think of the replacements of being this raw unplanned unvarnished real band which they were there was also a lot of thought or at least instinct behind what they were doing yeah and to that end one of the things i was kind of surprised just from and, and i am a fan you point out that despite their age they were fairly sophisticated musically from the start the loser mythos and, and the inability to play was all kind of made up by paul 
I, to a certain extent, I mean, I think it was true for Paul. I mean, Paul had been kicking around in garage bands, really, as a hotshot kind of lead guitarist for a, a number of years. Tommy is just a natural musician, and Bob, even though he could sort of be out there and musically in, in a lot of ways, he was a really forceful player. And Chris, in his own way, too, you know, they'd come up together. So once they get into that kind of punk or post-punk era where virtuosity wasn't really, you know, the watchword, they dialed it back and sort of played up the idea of them as these high school dropouts, which they were essentially, as guys who didn't even have a, a high school diploma or a driver's license between them. And so all of that was played up, but it also happened to be true and it sort of was one of the forces uh, or elements that was driving the band and helping them build that reputation. I do think, though, as much as it might have driven them, perhaps it also haunted them a little bit. Certainly, all that stuff kind of held them back, even from the beginning. They were very fortunate in terms of the people they encountered, starting with Peter Jesperson, who you know was the co-founder of Twin Tone and would sign the band and manage the band and be their great champion and benefactor. Since none of them drove, none of them could even get to a gig. You know? So there was a sort of logistical baseline that there had to be somebody else involved, really, from the start for them to kind of make it work. They were fortunate all through their careers, but starting with Peter to have somebody who, you know, saw the magic spark in them and wanted to support them and be part of their journey. And one of the things, of course, anybody who starts a band, soon enough the girls would come. I was super happy to learn from your book, the genesis of the nickname The Mats, because I was never sure, and I had a lot of friends in Minneapolis through Ryko Disc, I never knew where that nickname came from. Yeah, I mean, it was a sort of colloquialism for placemat, sort of derivation of the replacements. Paul put it as sort of gaggle of girls that were the early sort of replacements fans. They sort of picked up maybe Paul's drunken <laughs> version of replacements, and then that got shortened to the mats, and then it sort of got picked up and around. And now some people hate that shorthand for them, but funnily enough, the only person I've actually really heard who uses that in conversation is Paul himself, so I guess it's valid. It was an early nickname that stuck to an extent and was good for me because then I could alternate calling the replacements and mats uh, sort of made it easier for me in the book. You mentioned this earlier. It seems there's a power struggle kind of early on between Bob and Paul, even down to the guitar parts and the solos. When did it become Paul's band? I don't think it was so much a struggle early on as it was, you know, Paul talks about it, it was getting their styles to fit together. And in fact, I think when you listen to the first record, first couple records, that sort of push and pull between Paul and Bob as guitar players really is what drives the music. When you listen back now, you can really hear how much that's casting and coloring the song. There was the idea that the replacements were Bob's band, and it was his group and his baby brother and his drummer. And when Paul came in, it certainly took off. And from that point, there was no looking back. It was a ascent, slow or fast, for the next 10 years. There came a point probably around Oot Nanny, which is their third album, where Paul, who was a restless creative spirit and his whose songs, you know, after the initial burst of, you know, loud, fast and snotty things he was doing on Sorry Ma and Stink, their first two records, his songs started changing. Even going back to the first single, the B-side is If Only You Were Lonely, which is a kind of acoustic country song that Paul cut as a solo number. There was always the, the element of his songwriting moving and evolving faster maybe than the band was evolving. And so that became a little push and pull between him and Bob around the time of Hoot Nanny. Paul eventually got his way on that a little bit and put Within Your Reach, which is kind of a solo song and very much a departure for their placements at that time. And then I, it went on, even on Let It Be, and then ultimately to an extent with Tim, at which point Bob really starts to separate from the band. There was always a tension there, but for the first three, four years anyway, that tension was a good thing and a positive thing and something that propelled the band rather than holding them back. But eventually, you know, the, it did become something that sort of shifted and, and certainly shifted Bob's role in the group, I think. 
Yeah, and it's almost like it was two different forces, really. You mentioned that, you know, sorry, Mom, forgot to take out the trash. It's definitely loud and hard and fast. But there's moments in it, and especially in Hootenanny later on, where Paul's songwriting really comes to the fore. Within your reach or color me impressed, it just doesn't seem like those could have existed on something like Sorry, Mom. But I think some of that, too, was the nature of the band establishing itself and developing an identity. And Paul says it in the book, after the first couple records, we'd done what we'd done. And, you know, he always was of the opinion that you should start moving moving around because they can't throw tomatoes and bottles at you if you're if you're moving around you know <laughs> musically and physically and Hootenanny in a way is the definitive replacements record in that it's the record that is truly them because they're attempting anything and everything stylistically and musically and structurally that's kind of the departure point and leads into their you know real golden period of let it be and tim and please to meet me each record has its own set of unique circumstances that was dictating it or one record was a reaction to the last one or to the last period each replacements record is a distinct entity and as you look at their whole catalog the eight albums they made they really are, for the most part, unique and different records, each and every one. That's part of why people still gravitate towards the band, because there isn't a uniformity. They didn't, didn't make the same album over and over again. And you recount in your book that NRBQ served as kind of a role model musically. And when I first read that, I kind of went, huh. But then... As I thought about it, it makes perfect sense. There was a spirit of being this band that was fearless enough to try anything, whether it was a weird slow blues number, hardcore like Run It, to an indie pop song like uh, Color Me Impressed. That was where the inspiration of NRBQ was, was not to be afraid to try any kind of music, even if it came out through their own replacements-esque filter. Well, it's funny, too, because Minneapolis critic John Bream likened that record to The Clash's Santa Vista. <laughs> which is one of my favorite underappreciated records and one that also caught a lot of heat in the press. Um, do you think that's an apt comparison? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think the replacements ever had any pretensions to doing like a four-sided or six-sided six LP or whatever. And, and certainly they weren't at the point where they could have really indulged themselves in that way. But in miniature, in their own way, Nanny is the we'll-try-anything ethos, you know, kind of on whack. Well, and there's Kiss cover. There's a Cat Scratch Fever kind of homage and when they get to Let It Be, they're doing a, you know, 16 Blue on, on Let It Be as a kind of early Rod Stewart folky number. There was a willingness from Hootenanny on to try anything, certainly in that period, 83, 84, 85, where, where you really hear that in their music. Minneapolis at this time had become quite the burgeoning music scene, and the Mats would have a really, well, semi-healthy and a long-term competition with Husker Du, who's also from that area. Mm -hmm. And I find it that interesting because those two bands are just worlds apart, you know, musically and especially professionally. How did that all come about? Was it just the two kings of the small town? Yeah, I mean, I think that was it in the beginning. I mean, Husker Du had a bit of a head start on them, and then the replacements were very quickly embraced by the sort of establishment in terms of the establishment being Twin Tone and Peter Jesperson. And Husker Du had kind of been rejected by the label. And then Terry Katzman, who was the replacements early sound man and worked at the record store where Peter Jesperson worked and was his confidant, he ended up doing that role for Husker Du for many years. And, you know, it was a small scene, and the differences, I think now we can go back and listen sonically and in terms of songwriting and, and approach and philosophy and obviously Husker Du was a lot different than the replacements and certainly their path was a lot different but at the time in the very early years they were just two local bands sharing the bill a lot of the time and, and Husker Du certainly took them on the road and put them on the path of the hardcore scene in 81, 82 the replacement Stink EP is, a, is an outgrowth of that experience touring and playing with Husker Du and, and in a way, they got tired of that hardcore scene very quickly, and I think that led to Hootenanny. 
the, the relationship, whether it was a kinship or a competition with Husker Du, uh, was really important and, and a formative one in that early period. Mold was still out there making music. Westerberg, you know, has been in recent years. So it's like the songwriter focal point. Yeah, I think there's a lot of similarities even among all the differences with those two bands, especially going all the way back. And fair to say that the replacements rejected that loud, hard, fast rules audience as much as the audience kind of rejected the replacements. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I just think it was a mutual antipathy after a while when the replacements wouldn't give those crowds what they wanted and they would sort of develop almost as a defense mechanism, the ability to play very incongruous covers very slowly, much to the frustration of the audience. But I think that facing down hardcore crowds made the replacements in a way. For a while, they tried to keep up with Husker Du and play to those crowds and very quickly because temperamentally, Westerberg and company would get bored with any situation and were maybe just not wired to give people what they wanted and felt much more like being the contrarians where that kind of kicked in was in the latter stages of them on that hardcore circuit and in a way they cut their teeth and really kind of made their bones as a band facing down those audiences and it certainly served them well or served them anyway in later years when they got to bigger stages and other kinds of crowds and, and audiences that they could upset. The Hootenanny record caught a lot of support throughout the music scene. I know X became a big supporter around this time. I think Hootenanny was the one that took them from being just a punk band or just a loud and fast and sort of snotty band into a band that had a different kind of scope and breadth to their music. And also the band really started touring nationally. For the first two, three years, they mostly toured just regionally in the upper Midwest and played locally. And that was because their bass player, Tommy Stinson, was still in you know junior high and high school. And so it wasn't until Hootenanny, till the spring of 83, when Tommy quit the 10th grade and the band really went on the road that their reputation exploded nationally and they were playing and touring with X and other bands like that. You know, that was another reason why the Hootenanny era is important because they become a fully functioning touring band at that point. Yeah, and I think the X relationship is interesting because X had that unique take on Roots music. So they probably got what the replacements were trying to do. They did. Xene was a big fan and there was a kinship. I don't know, X being a little older, almost like a paternal thing with Tommy and the replacements who were still very young at that point. They were a good support and a good model for the replacements and they certainly played some memorable shows together. And I do think the support of X and, you know, in that era, it was all word of mouth or what you read, you know, your favorite band recommending another band in an interview, X talking them up and certainly R.E.M. and Peter Buck talking their placements up around that time, 83, 84, really turned a lot of folks on to the group. Yeah, they had an interesting relationship with R.E.M. and you explore that throughout most of their career in your book. And of course, R.E.M. would go on to heights that the replacements would continually fall off of. And that goes back to them sort of starting and, and developing at the same time, being on the same circuit. And, and the, the sort of common denominator was Peter Jesperson, who, in addition to managing the replacements, was a big R.E.M. fan and actually went on the road with R.E.M. tour managing them for a bit. So I think from the very beginning, there was a sense of friendship and kinship with R.E.M., but also a very serious sense of competition that only became exacerbated as R.E.M. became more successful. But, you know, there was also a point where the replacements were, in a way, ahead of R.E.M. And the replacements really signed to a major label first and looked like they were going to be the next big thing. And then, of course, R.E.M. had a big hit in 87 and then ended up signing a, a very big contract with the replacements label, Warner Brothers. So there was always a kind of shadow story. Ultimately, R.E.M. sort of making that leap and showing that an alternative band or a band from that American indie world could become a very large and successful pop act really put quite an onus and pressure on the replacements around the late part of their major label career to become successful. R.E.M. is an important figure or character in the replacement story, no doubt. 
We're speaking with Bob Mayer, who's the author of Trouble Boys, The True Story of the Replacements. We'd be remiss, Bob, if we were not to examine the role alcohol played with this band. It was there through the beginning, almost to the very end. And you broke down each member's relationship with different abuses, and they all had their own thing. But it's fair to say that alcohol probably sunk many a gig and definitely more than a few showcases. Sure. Although, you know, the funny thing about their they were not a boozy band from the start. There wasn't any money or, or status for them. You know, they didn't they were quite famous or popular enough to really mess up in the early years, as most bands are. And the music didn't really lend itself to the kind of looser qualities of, that alcohol <laughs> provides. So it was much more fast and tight and speedy in its own way. It wasn't until the middle of the Hootenanny period and then in heavily into 84 that booze became so much more a part of their presentation. I mean, certainly they always drank and, and they would have some beers to get up on stage, you know, to kind of conquer their stage fright. And then I think ultimately it became part of the myth and the presentation and the music and the show in many cases for bad, but in some cases for good. And in some cases it didn't matter. You know, I, one of the things that I set out to sort of dispel the idea that every drunken show was a bad show. I mean, sometimes the drunkest shows were the sharpest and best shows, and it was the hungover shows where they hadn't had anything to drink that were the real messes. There is no denying them. I mean, that's their story. You know, my goal with the book was to really actually examine the reality of that and how it actually impacted things from a creative and musical level. And then also from a personal level. Alcohol as a coping mechanism really was an issue for Bob Stinson and led to him leaving the band. And ultimately, it became a real issue for Westerberg at the end of the group. And he got sober, going all the way back to their childhoods and their family stuff. Alcohol and alcoholism and addiction is a, is a big part in their story. If there is a plus side in your book, you explain two stories that booze definitely had an impact on. And one is the naming of the band, The Replacements. The one that I just couldn't stop laughing about was how they, their album Let It Be got its name, which definitely involved booze. <laughs> Right. Well, and also them wanting to tweak Peter Jesperson, who wasn't as a massive Beatles fan. They were driving somewhere around the time that they were trying to come up with an album title. And they said, well, the next song on the radio, we'll name the album after that. And, you know, of course, it's Let It Be by the Beatles. And, and when they told Jesperson they were going to call the album <laughs> Let It Be, he was sort of scratching his head and couldn't believe it. But of course, and the thought was that they were going to name their next album let it bleed after the Stones record, but they, they didn't end up doing that. Humor and booze and booze and humor in, in one degree or another was always kind of the guiding light for the band, certainly in that period. And Let It Be is their first major musical statement, and many consider that to be their masterpiece. Of the Twin Tone records, it's considered the masterpiece, partly because of when it came out, that great year of 1984, where there was so many important indie records. It was really kind of that record and the hubbubs surrounding the band at that point was what got them to their star status, got them onto Warner Brothers' radar, and got them signed. And so, you know, that'll always be kind of fixed as the record. Legitimately, it, it is a fantastic record and still holds up, and, and it's the one that you know maybe is the entry point for a lot of people. Personally, I think Hootenanny is a great record. I think Tim is maybe has some of their most enduring songs. I think Please to Meet Me might be their most complete album all the way through. I think the last album, All Shook Down, is the most fully realized set of songs they have. So it depends what day you ask me or ask most Replacements fans. They might have a different favorite record, but certainly Let It Be, I think, is the one that instantly think of and is probably the one that ranks highest in you know critics' lists from the band. Well, for our listeners, a reason to go out and buy Bob's book is because there are some photographs of the band trying to recreate the Let It Be album cover, and it is hysterical as it sounds, so it's worth checking that out. So the band gets signed by Seymour Stein's boutique label, Sire Records, which is owned and distributed by Warner Brothers. And you'd think this might be the time to grow up and make a proper record, but dot, dot, dot. 
it's not. As I mentioned, it was it's kind of an early period of bands making that jump from the indie label world to a major label. And I don't think there was any blueprint for how a band was supposed to grow in the major label world at that time. And the replacements really were kind of guinea pigs almost for how alternative music was going to end up being sold and marketed and how those bands were going to be dealt with and developed. And they made that record, Tim, in Minneapolis with their longtime engineer, Steve Felstead, and Tommy Ramone producing kind of a, a extended part of the Sire and Seymour Stein family. And I do think it's only a grown-up record in the sense that I think Westerberg songs were growing up. You're seeing some of his true masterpieces in terms of songs writing things like Here Comes the Regular Bastards of Young, Left of the Dial, Little Mascara. I mean, really the things that are the songs in which Paul's reputation really rests. And that was happening at that time, even though internally the band was starting to fray and Bob was starting to move away from the band. And there was all the growing pains that you have when you go from an indie label to a major label. But that record probably still holds up in a lot of ways. And certainly the songs when the band reunited in 2013, at their set list, they're probably playing the most stuff off of the Tim album. So I think it's an important record, but it was still not going to be the kind of record in 1985 that was necessarily going to be played on radio. I don't think the replacements were ready, nor do I think Warner Brothers or Sire thought they were suddenly overnight going to be a uh, polished pop band making it in the big 80s, you know? And you're right about the songwriting. That's probably my favorite record, mostly on the strength of the ballads, like Waitress in the Sky and Swinging Party and Left of the Dial is amazing, Hold My Life. It really seemed to have a little bit of everything. That record is where you see Paul starting to synthesize a lot of his different influences. People think of the replacements as coming out of this punk and classic rock era. Paul went back to 60s pop and bubblegum pop and even show tunes. And I think you're starting to see him bring even more of those formative childhood influences. You know, the things that never leave you that you hear very early. Really, you hear that in things like I'll Buy or Hold My Life or, as you say, Waitress in the Sky. And each of these records, you see a, a little bit more or a new wrinkle or new element in the songwriting coming into play. But the label certainly couldn't have been happy with the title, Tim. <laughs> you had mentioned Let It Bleed. But Tim, I mean, that's rough. It was certainly a question mark. And of course, the art, the label that came up for the album, which was by a modern artist, uh, it was bizarre set title and album cover. It was still an incredibly lauded album. I think that's the record where Critic really picked up on the replacements. I mean, LA Times and, and the New York Times really started to give the band its due. And, and Rolling Stone, too. That's where it's, the band's reputation as Critic's Darling really kind of is cemented, I think. The band always seemed to have trouble with producers. You mentioned Tommy Ramone produced that one, and on paper that seems like a great choice, but it wasn't, right? I mean, I think from a production aspect at that point, there probably wasn't a whole lot anyone could have done with the replacements. Replacements part, they didn't really know what a producer was supposed to do. Their first four albums have been produced variously by the band and Peter Jesperson and Steve Felstead, the engineer. And there was never a really clear understanding of what a producer was supposed to do. I think they just knew they had a good set of songs and they had to kind of get it down on tape. Now, some people don't like the sound of that record or maybe the way it was recorded or, you know, I don't know, some of the equipment was not functioning fully. That record still holds up and it might not have been the big transformation sonically that the label was looking for but Tommy got those songs down on tape and I think they, they stick to the tape and they stick to people's minds and hearts even though it's a kind of imperfect record sonically. I wanted to dive a little deeper in something you just mentioned and that was in at this point in time how major labels were marketing alternative rock bands and in your book you write that the replacements were kind of guinea pigs. 
you know, you had Jason and the Scorchers, you had the Dell Lords, you had some of the bands that were sort of contemporaries, the replacements that were kind of being groomed slowly in some cases with EPs or development deals onto these major labels. And for the case of the replacements, Seymour Stein, you know, who's sire, who was part of the Warner Brothers family, came in and just because he had the power, he snatched them up right away. And Michael Hill from Warner Brothers became their de facto A&R man. Uh, it wasn't Seymour's way or or Michael Hill's way as an A&R man to really push or mold the band into something they weren't. It was really just about getting the records out and getting the band on the road and doing the sort of little things you could in terms of promotion and marketing, things like, you know, them them appearing on Saturday Night Live and, and doing more sort of print interviews and college radio and things like that, just grooming them or at least trying to get them out into the, the world of promotion and marketing in as much as you could. The label and the bands were finding out what they were able to do and willing to do and what worked and what didn't and you know of course the replacements didn't always help themselves in that area because they weren't built or suited temperamentally for some of the things you had to do which other bands say rem were obviously maybe better suited at shaking hands and saying the right things but i think it was a little bit early in that era of understanding how to market alternative music into the mainstream and, and so there was a lot, lot of uh, trial and error there Paul Westerberg was notoriously anti-video from the very beginning and believing, you know, correctly in my opinion, that they robbed the listener of their own interpretations of the song. But now they're on a major label. It was a necessity is timing. The first couple that they put out are just pure replacements, pure punk rock, and pretty much the, the same video. Right, right. Yeah, they just, one was in black and white, one was in color. They spent a few grand one afternoon and shot these videos of the speaker and a guy's foot tapping to it. In its own way, it was a statement video because that was a time where videos and video budgets were becoming very narrative driven and high gloss, expensive and, you know, multi-million dollar productions. And here's this video of a bunch of albums and a crate and a speaker and a stereo and, and nothing else, uh, you know, a dog in the background. It was one of those things of, you know, the replacements didn't want to make a video. Okay, well, how do we make a video without the band in it? And this was one way of doing it. And in its own way, it became a statement and became an iconic video, even though it probably didn't really get shown a whole lot on MTV at that time. So it didn't really do much to goose sales. With the replacements, a lot of the things that happened happened out of a kind of necessity. And then that necessity became an artistic or, or a philosophic statement. Right. And the LA Times, ironically, would call Bastards of Young the ultimate rock video. So right, there you right. go. There you go. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. We're talking to Bob Mayer, who's the author of Trouble Boys, The True Story of the Replacements. The band starts off as a series of shows in Minneapolis to celebrate the release of Tim. And I mean, disaster is probably a little harsh, but we have the bat signal. We have corks flying and bands brawling on stage. I mean, what was that about? They wanted to launch that record in a way that sort of was true to their roots. So instead of playing the big theater in town, they ended up doing a five-night stand at the uh, 7th Street Entry, which was about a 150-capacity club, and did an all-ages show. And one of Westbrook's conditions for doing it was to have a bat light in the sky with the silhouette of Bab. <laughs> you mentioned sort of the tussle between Bob and Paul on stage. Yes, some of that was good natured, some of it wasn't, but it was indicative of where Bob's time in the band was coming to a head. And so those shows in that era into the Tim era and the Tim tour really becomes the slow exit of Bob Stinson out of the band. Yeah, that tour was somewhat of a disaster as well. And as you mentioned, at the end of that tour, the band decides to cut Bob Stinson loose, and Tommy is the swing vote. The tour got cut short because Paul damaged his hands at a show at the Ritz, and there was some thought that they would try and start making the next record. They did some demos. Bob was supposed to show up. He showed up for a day, didn't for the rest. That really kind of brought things to a head. Bob was much more comfortable being a big fish in a small pond, being on the road, being in the major label world, being in the pop world. It wasn't something he wanted or probably was suited for. And that was a reality that had to be dealt with, both from his end and from the band's end. And, and really, Paul was ready to sort of pack it in. And rather than fire Bob or split with Bob, just kind of end the group, Chris and Tommy felt like there was more life in the group. And it was a very tough decision, you know, certainly for Tommy and for all of them. They needed to part ways with Bob because otherwise the band wouldn't have existed or gone past 1985. And in a way, for the short term, it was better for Bob, too. He found new groups, new opportunities, and with the ability to start a band from scratch and lead a band his own way. And I think it was the right decision for all concerned, even though at the time, obviously, it was tremendously difficult and controversial. Like a lot of things in the replacements history, it was a, it was a kind of inevitability, and, and they had to move on from there. Their next record, Pleased to Meet Me, would seem on paper, again, to be an indie rocker's dream. You have Jim Dickinson producing it and a song that Paul wrote about one of his heroes in Alex Chilton. So they ended up making that record as a trio just because they needed to start working on it. And Paul, having been a lead guitarist in his former life, could handle those duties. And it's interesting, in, in a way, they were kind of like a three-legged chair or something. And Jim Dickinson and Arden Studios kind of became the fourth leg, you know, propping them up and, and supporting them. And Jim got a performance and a record out of them that me might not otherwise have gotten and the band might not otherwise made because they sort of limped into Memphis as this kind of not entirely whole entity having split with Bob. That record, again, like a lot of their records, there were factors and personnel and elements that made that a kind of unique record in its own way. And, you know, dimensionally, just making a record as a three-piece was a different thing. And of course, with Dickinson appearing playing on it and, and other folks like the Memphis Horns and Teenage Steve Douglas and Prince Gabe and all these kind of Memphis characters that Jim brought in, it's a different sounding and feeling record. You know, again, it's a really powerful statement and it's a classic replacements record but it's also the only replacements record like that in their catalog and they ended up enlisting slim dunlap after the record was done in fact jim dickinson called it a fundamentally transformative journey it sounds like that's probably pretty accurate on several levels 
I think it was true for them. I mean, that was the first time they had really worked with such a forceful and magnetic producer as Jim. And Jim was a philosopher and a sage in his own way. And he brought something out in the replacements and gave them the gift of themselves almost, and particularly with Paul. He realized that he had a gift and was willing to acknowledge that as a songwriter and singer. And a lot of that came through the sessions in Memphis and working with Jim. I think they were transformed to a great extent by that process. And then also by that tour and bringing Slim Dunlap into the group who is eight years their senior uh, and a different kind of personality than Bob and he really kind of solidified the band for their next phase of their career. Yeah, and it's interesting because Westerberg famously says right about this time, and I think he says it several times, he tells someone in the label side, I can't give you 100%. I can't mean it every night kind of in a nutshell, that's the heart of the replacements. Well, it was all those things. There was also an inability at Paul's part to fake it every night and what would be left for himself. You know, the inspiration for that was an interview that he had read that Bob Dylan had given in Rolling Stone where Dylan talked about the need of an artist to keep something for himself and not give everything of himself the way like Judy Garland did and become an empty husk or a shell. Paul took those words to heart as he often did with things that Bob Dylan said. Paul had to be genuine and sometimes he was genuinely mad on stage. Sometimes he was genuinely passionate and inspired. Sometimes he was genuinely bored and the performance would reflect that. I don't think what he could do was fake it, but I also don't think he could get himself to a point where he could live the songs and live that passion and power of those songs every night and not drain himself completely because he wasn't really naturally a performer. I mean, he told me once, he's like, when I was in school, I was the kid in class. His palms would sweat, nervous that the teacher would call on him. You know, how I ever ended up on the stage and in the spotlight is ridiculous. He had a need to express himself, and sometimes people who don't know how to express themselves any other way, they end up being in a rock band. If Tim wasn't the record that the label expected, it seems to me Please to Meet Me was pretty darn close to delivering everything they needed. They sort of do a video where they're in it. It's a great cover. I think they were certainly primed for a next big jump, and that sort of the legs got cut out from under that record because the first single that was chosen from that album was a song called The Ledge, which you know addressed teen suicide, and that was the single and the song they made the video for, even though the video didn't depict anything other than the band sort of sitting around and you know scratching their chins and scratching their ears. The song was, like a lot of Paul's songs, really hit home and was a pretty profound statement. But it also came at a time where there had been a rash of teen suicides and MTV was very sensitive to that and probably being a little hypocritical in the sense that they felt they could take the opportunity to ban this baby band and ban that video because of the content, the song, whereas they're showing all kinds of violent and sexual images, you know, in other videos. And that was dumb luck and bad luck when it came time to picking a single and making that the song that they made the video for. And so that impeded the natural momentum of that album, even though they had a kind of alternative radio hit with Alex Chilton and also with Can't Hardly Wait. Some of the replacements missteps in their career were their own fault, and some of them were just kind of uh, bad luck and bad timing. Right, right. And, you know, you mentioned I Can't Hardly Wait, and I, I just don't know why they didn't go with that song, because that is just a classic. I think the version that they cut in Memphis, which is great with horns and strings and all that sort of stuff, I think that was a great song and would have been a great single, but maybe not a first single because it was so atypical of the band. The plan was to roll out the ledge and then Alex Chilton and Can't Hardly Wait or in some order. And when things kind of went south with the ledge at MTV and then radio kind of pulling back from playing that, for a band at that level, it's not a Bon Jovi track or a Billy Joel thing where you put it out and everyone's going to play it. They had to kind of build to something. And Well, it's interesting you mentioned building blocks because, as you mentioned, at a banquet of excess tour, they start writing songs for their next album and they sound defeated and 
that record becomes Don't Tell Us All. I know a lot of the early fans and the critics even call it a sellout. But I see that more as just another growth, you know, on every level. You can't write the same songs at 20 when you're 30. You know, that's the thing. The band at that point had been together almost 10 years. I mean, that's a lifetime. The Beatles were only together that long. There was growth in the band. There was change in the industry and the music business. And mainly there was evolution in terms of the songs and what Paul was writing and how he was writing them. There was a desire to make a real record or to make the process a bigger part of the creative aspect of the album. And so they started making that record in Bearsville with a producer named Tony Berg. And they went up to the woods and Tony started getting some good stuff. But I think the environment there was very stifling. You know, City Boys in the Country isn't a formula that really worked for these guys. Guys. Then they restarted making the album with Matt Wallace and made a really great record. And Matt produced a really great record. But I think the, the record company and the management wanted to hedge their bets against kind of what had happened the last time, you know, in terms of uh, having a really commercial sounding record. They handed it off to be mixed by a pro mixer and Chris Lord Algae. And he did the job he was tasked with. I mean, he made a commercial sounding record. He, he muscled it up and hid the band's flaws. But what happened in the process, then it sort of sounded different and it felt different than the record the band had made. And probably felt a lot more polished and in combination with these more ambitious and different sounding songs struck some longtime fans as a kind of a sellout or a cop out or some kind of reinvention that strayed from their roots but as you say i think it was musically and in, in terms of the songs it was just a natural growth and as i say no two replacements records were ever the same really the reason that record sort of threw people and why ultimately its reputation was probably a bit maligned in, in the decades since was really had more to do with the kind of sonic elements it was really time stamped with the kind of a mix and production elements the, the late 80s and so you know that that was one of the reasons why very recently I was involved in helping put together a box set called Dead Man's Pop, which was a reimagining of Don't Tell a Soul album, which actually uses Matt Wallace's mix rather than Chris Lord Algie's mix. And it's a totally different sounding record and it also includes a live record some of the Bearsville sessions with Tony Berg. So, you know, that was one of the uh, what ifs in the replacement story that we were ultimately 30 years later able to tweak and fix. And that was by putting out the record that the band would have liked to have put out and probably should have back in 89. And I've listened to bits of that, and it is amazing. It's almost two different records. You mentioned a what-if, and one of the, the big what-ifs, and, and maybe it's the band's fault, but it seemed like a perfect opportunity for them to open for Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers for that tour. And again, another disaster, which should have been a golden opportunity. For a band at that time, a quasi-alternative band that was trying to break, there was only so many avenues where you could get more exposure. I mean, MTV was one. If you got lucky enough to have a radio hit, that was another. The other was getting in front of a big rock band like Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers and opening a tour. And, and so it made a lot of sense on a lot of levels. They had always been on the up from the first record. Everything was growing, growing, growing. Each record was more successful and, and better received than the last, even if it never quite scaled. Super commercial heights. So they were always on a progression. And when they got onto that Petty tour, it was almost kind of like going back to square one, having to win over this audience that didn't know about them or in some cases really care about them. That was a shock to their system. The way they reacted to that was to be confrontational and contrarian and challenge Petty's audiences and challenge Petty and, and Petty's road crew and the whole showbiz aspect of that. And so it ended up being a difficult tour in a lot of ways and didn't really end up being the uh, breakthrough that anybody had hoped for, although it certainly made for some memorable shows and memorable moments. And especially live, it seems that that's part of the band's DNA is if they're asked to do A, they're going to do Z. 
Yeah, I mean, it was that, you know, for a band like The Replacements, spontaneity was their lifeblood. And the truth is, when you get to that level of performance, playing arenas, playing sheds, playing that big time rock and roll world, there is far less room for spontaneity and improvisation and looseness. And that was just not something The Replacements were ever suited for. And the Petty Tour sowed the seeds in Westenberg's mind that maybe the band had run its course in that form, that they were never going to be stars on the level of the heart breakers they were never going to be able to function in that arena rock world and so they might as well kind of pack it in and that is sort of what led to the replacements final album all shook down which was sort of started as a paul westerberg solo project ended up being a band record and then obviously into what became their final tour in 1991 well all of those things that you mentioned come to pass in two ideas that i need you to recount for our listeners that are just hilarious. And those were the merch ideas from Chris Mars and Tommy Stinson. I mean, the funny thing about the replacements is they never sold merch of any kind until the 1989 tour. They did a t-shirt deal with Brockham, the merch uh, company. Yeah. They had some funny ideas, you know, like I think one idea is they were going to have a shirt that said, uh, you know, the replacements. And then it was one of those shirts that kind of had invisible ink until the first time you washed it. And then it was going to say, you know, I got suckered by the replacements, you know, after you washed it. <laughs> they sort of did a version of that where it said I was robbed $18 by the replacements with a picture of the band and a dollar bill sign. And then uh, I think Chris Mars' idea was to have uh, the band's faces in the armpit holes of the T-shirt. <laughs> So they had some pretty wacky ideas, some of which they actually followed through on. But yeah, that was kind of their cockeyed approach to merchandising as well. Pure replacements to let that bit of money go past, you know, which they did a lot. You know, right about this time, things are unraveling pretty fast for all the band members. Chris Mars leaves. There's divorces. There's rehab. Bob is really sliding downward quickly. Against all of this, they released the sadly beautiful record that you mentioned, All Shook Down. If it's their final music statement, it's widely perceived as a Paul solo album. I think Paul's thing was he had become enamored with his home demos and he wanted to work doing demos first. And those demos with Scott Litt, who had produced R.E.M. and at one point had been up for consideration to produce Please to Meet Me. He ended up coming on board and they started working with a sampler and, and a studio and just Scott and Paul. And then they tried to bring in some other studio musicians and that didn't work. So Tommy came in and then they eventually did some sessions with the full band in California and, you know, different drummers came in. And ultimately that was kind of what led to, to Chris Mars leaving the group before the final tour. It was the record that Paul needed to make at the time, and, and in a weird way, it's not a true replacements record, but it is also at the same time, because, you know, Paul's contributions and Tommy's contributions are, are there, and it was maybe this, a different kind of replacements record. I think there was some thought that maybe Paul and Tommy would continue the band with different members, and of course that didn't really come to pass. Paul and Tommy went on to do solo things, as did Slim, as did Chris. And it was a weird, a bit of a down note ending, but I do think the, the positive side of it is that, that record in its own way kind of stands as an odd but really affecting collection of songs and a really interesting quote-unquote replacements record. Bob Stinson passes in 1995, and that hits the band really hard. Shortly after, Slim Dunlap suffers a series of strokes. Paul goes to visit him in the hospital. He encourages Westerberg to go play. 
At that point, Paul and Tommy had been given offers to reform the band for many years and, and do reunion dates or festivals and stuff like that. And Paul had always resisted it. You know, when Slim fell ill and he was in his hospital bed, Paul was visiting him. Paul was kind of talking about the idea came up again. Paul was kind of debating whether to do a, a reunion tour or not. And Slim, you know, really encouraged him to do it from his hospital bed, said, go play. And I think meaning that, you know, you don't know how long you're going to last and what the future holds and what I think the band is and what it means to people and what the relationship between Paul and Tommy is is so special that it was important for them to get out there one more time at least and kind of do a victory lap and to play well and to play for audiences who probably hadn't never seen them a lot of them before and so I think that the reunion that the band did 2013 to 2015 was was really validating in a strange way and in an unexpected way for Paul and for Tommy and there was so much expectation for the replacements and it always felt that there was some disappointment that they'd come up short somehow and then when they get out on that tour and they're playing to 15,000 people in a baseball stadium in Minneapolis or to 13,000, 14,000 people at Forest Hills in New York. And there are thousands of people singing back these songs to them. I think there was a real sense of victory. And that whole experience was a validation of, of what they had done and what they'd gone through and how much the music meant then and, and still does now. And it was important that they did do it at least once to give folks a chance to see them and to kind of bask in that love at least once, you know. They were nominated for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and they fell short and did not get in. Do you think they belong in there? I mean, I think they do. And when you look at the people who they've influenced and, and whose music bears their influence, who, who are in there. At a certain point, it's not about sales or commercial heights. It's about influence and importance and creative quality. And I, I don't think there's any doubt that the band deserves to be there. Will they get in? Probably not. I mean, I, my sense is that their nomination in 2013 was a bit of a fluke. You know, they haven't been nominated since. The replacements have never been more popular or more vital. I see that in terms of the response to the book, seen that in terms of the response to the archival and reissue projects we've done and the sales of those, and in just the way that the band is regarded and talked about. The replacements uh, keep gaining new fans and keep growing, even in their absence. Hopefully that will kind of reach a crescendo where it won't be such a strange idea that they could be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Maybe someday it'll be more viable and, and it'll happen. It would be kind of a kick to see the band get in there and see them sort of uh, in the pantheon. If they don't get in, hey, the records are still there. People can still listen to, the, to that stuff and judge for themselves whether they're one of the greats, and I think they are. Well, I am all in, if only to witness them playing at the All-Star Jam. Right. <laughs> that would be just incredible. Well, Bob Mayer, your book is Trouble Boys, The True Story of the Replacements. It's incredible. People should go out as well and pick up the box set that you recently co-produced and wrote the liner notes and some essays for. And we'd like to thank you for being on today. Well, I appreciate you for having me and appreciate you for digging into the book and letting people know. So thank you. It's a must read. Thanks, Bob. If you'd like to find out more about his book, please visit allmusicbooks.com, and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive episodes there. I'd like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. Finally, a big shout out to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout this podcast. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all the major streaming services. Please support your local and independent musicians and writers. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning into Deep Dive, an all-music books podcast.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.